Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening and welcome to episode 0000209 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, going to be your host through the wait this evening, broadcasting to you from World Headquarters here at Triple R, which of course is at the end of the 96 line in East Brunswick, which is on the land of the Kulin Nation, and in particular, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to them and to any mob that are out there listening at the moment. Now, tonight on the show, we have uh, two wonderful guests. Shortly, we'll be joined by GetUp CEO, Larissa Baldwin-Roberts. She'll be on the line to give us some insight and an overview as to how the referendum is tracking from GetUp's perspective and any role that uh, GetUp sees itself playing in the lead-up to the referendum in, in October. And in the second half of the show, the one and only Melissa Lukashenko, the esteemed author, will be joining us. She's penned uh, an amazing essay in the monthly about Indigenous identity and those who know about their Indigenous ancestry but choose not to identify. So stick around. That should be a really interesting conversation. But before all of that, Veronica Nelson. We will continue to say her name. The bail reforms that were promised after a coroner handed down a damning finding earlier this year into Veronica's 2020 death in custody, which concluded that the state's bail law had resulted in a complete unmitigated disaster. It was heavily reported at the time, and there was much hand-wringing and uh, you know, positive sounds made. Victoria's Attorney-General Jacqueline Symes said at the time, our bail laws need to, be, need to protect the community without having a disproportionate or unintended impact on those accused of low-level offending who do not present a risk to the community safety. That was in February, and at the same time it was being reported that the proposed changes to the law, to the bail laws, would target the contentious reverse onus test that says it does not apply to low that does not apply to low level offenders. So let me just say that again because I messed it up. The contentious reverse onus test that does not apply to low level offenders. Let's remember that uh, Veronica Nelson was put into uh, uh, Dame Phyllis Frost uh, prison. Let's call it a prison uh, on uh, New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's Day, twenty twenty, because she had been spotted shoplifting by an off-duty policeman at uh, Southern Cross Station. Now, under the reverse onus test, the accused has to demonstrate why bail should be granted rather than police having to show a reason for bail to be denied. So she went in before she went in front of the magistrate uh, that evening uh, representing herself, no uh, representation from her whatsoever, and she had to prove while why she had to be given bail instead of the police having to prove to uh, the magistrate why she should be kept in custody. And also back in February, it was uh, reported that there would be a tweak to the unacceptable risk test, a threshold used to determine if someone was poses a risk or could endanger the public. 
So minor reoffending cannot be used for a reason to refuse bail. So on those two grounds, if those laws had been, I guess, not there and reform had been implemented earlier, uh, chances are, very good chances are, is that um, Veronica Nelson would never have been in custody in the first place. But this week, The Age has reported that the government will delay reforms for another 12 months and it's likely to retain the aforementioned unacceptable risk test, the test which was applied to keep Veronica Nelson in custody. So it makes you ask, who's running the show? The elected government or the prison industrial complex and all the systems and agencies that feed into it. In February... The coroner, the coroner couldn't have been clearer. The 2017 bail laws are discriminatory and a complete and unmitigated disaster. Jacqueline Symes acknowledged that, the, that after the coroner's findings in the death into Veronica Nelson, that some of what had, some, something hap, has to happen to make sure that these things don't happen again. And it's up to the government to do something about it. So in the intervening, intervening months since February, something's, hap- something's happened. The government is now denying reality and is refusing and is now prepared to take uh, a backflip to make sure that those reforms aren't implemented in full, as the coroner suggested. Well, we don't know for sure what is happening uh, in our democracy because that's the way things seem to be here in Victoria at the moment. Um, We don't know what conversations have been had. We don't know what pressures are being applied to the government as to why they would delay these reforms for 12 months and then not implement them in full because that would be merely the decent thing to do. But it comes back to the straight up and down logic that it can be applied from people who are affected by this, such as Uncle Percy Lovett, Veronica's partner, who said this week the government needs to make real changes to bail laws to stop so many people getting locked up before they have even been sentenced. No one should be locked up and refuse bail if they wouldn't go to prison. Now, the fact that that straight-up-and-down logic like that is is in dispute is an indictment on the government and an insult to the legacy of Veronica Nelson and her family. Veronica, who needlessly died in the early hours of January 2nd, 2020. She weighed 33 kilograms, was suffering malnutrition and was withdrawing from opioids. She should have been in hospital, not a cell, within a system that doesn't care, and she was there as a direct result of the draconian bail laws this government introduced in 2017 and have acknowledged go too far and are now sitting on their hands while those much-needed reforms to bail laws are waiting to be implemented. In the meantime, we wake each morning wondering whether there will be another death in custody such as the way of things here in Victoria, the so-called progressive state. And on to tonight's first guest. Uh, the, path, the path of this towards this year's referendum into constitutional reform and a voice to Parliament continues its long, windy path towards October. Uh, last time we had tonight's first guest on the program, we spoke about the importance of mob enrolling to vote, to, to, to participate in the referendum. We'll touch base on where we're at with enrolments in a second, 
But I thought it would be good to ask the CEO of GetUp, an independent movement of more than one million people working to build a progressive Australia and put people back into politics, onto the show to see how she thinks the whole process around the referendum and the campaign is going and what role GetUp will play. Larissa Baldwin-Roberts is the CEO of GetUp. She is a proud Wichibal Weeable woman and of, from the Bundjalung Nations. And Larissa has, of course, dedicated her life to First Nations justice, climate action, and to a more fair Australia. And I'm very pleased to say that Larissa is on the line with us now. Larissa, welcome back to the mission. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. I know that you're a very busy person. Um, last time we spoke, we were talking about enrolment rates amongst mob when it comes to the vote in this year's referendum. It looks like since then things have improved on that front with the national enrolment rate amongst First Nations people being um, at 94.1% according to the, the Australian Electoral Commission. Uh, is, that a, is that a good result or do we still have a way to go? It's a good result. Uh, it doesn't tell the full story, but so a lot of that is due to kind of order de- uh, the automated enrolment that the Electoral Commission has been um, doing a lot of work. So if you change your address and that sort of stuff and your details on Medicare um, for the referendum, the AEC uh, and the federal government basically passed some legislation changes to en- and allow that uh, automatic enrolment update, which is important. It gets people on the rolls. The problem is, is do mob know that they have been enrolled um, for the referendum uh, to be able to vote? So there's a disparity within that, and there still is a lot of work to do in, in terms of going out into our communities, making sure they know about the referendum, knowing what it's about, um, uh, and so they can cast their vote and when it's going to be, because that is actually going to be the challenge. So there's a lot of things that we would have liked to see in the reform. Um, we didn't get everything within there. But I think when you look at like, some recent stuff around the Vic Treaty stuff and the amount of people mob that enrolled that were incarcerated, almost as over like 95%, that's actually mob taking onus on themselves, getting enrolled in the vote because they knew that the kind of the treaty vote was really important to them. On the referendum, the mob that are out there in community that have been enrolled may not know that they're on the roll. Right. And a big the, issue in terms of turnout. Yeah, and there's still issues in terms of places like uh, Western Australia and, and Northern Territory where I think the involvement rate's around about 89%, I think, in the Territory or maybe a little bit lower. Um, so there's still work not only getting the numbers up, but all, like you said, once the numbers are up, making sure that people know what the issues are and know that they've got to vote in the first place. Yeah, that's it. So there's a lot of work to do around that. We've got our team out on the ground. Um, we've done some recent polling and that sort of stuff. It's around uh, 55% of our mob are saying that they know very little or nothing about the referendum. So, you know, there's a conversation there beyond yes or no or how you vote, just what even is this thing, what's going on, what's it about, and just giving people the information that they need to make up their own minds and to let them know that the referendum is coming. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a sign of how far... I think in particularly the Yes campaign has to go in terms of making sure that um, people are across the issues because this has been on the um, political agenda for quite a while now, um, certainly um, ever since Albanese came to government. Um, and the fact that people don't know what it is that they'll be voting for or some of the issues around it, um, that's got to be a bit alarming, even though it is predicted that the you know the election will be in October. October is going to creep up upon us pretty quickly. Isn't it a bit of a worry that people still don't know what the main issues are? 
it's a huge worry and you know, this is you know, we've been lobbying governments and talking to the official campaign and that sort of stuff. We know the role that mob play in terms of campaigning on the issues that affect us, that we have an incredibly persuasive voice, that we're seen by, you know, one in three voters that are voting in this referendum want to hear from First Nations people what they think on the referendum because they feel like it's a, it's a vote about somebody else's life and they want to be conscientious voters. Peter Dutton can turn that any way that he wants, but basically that's the intention of voters, that they really want to make the right decision here. So it is concerning. I mean, had we had control around making decisions around this, we would have made it very different. There's a lot of field work that needs to be done and, and consultation and just kind of giving our mob the information. Let them do what they want with it. But that is so important. Um, but we are going to a referendum on our uh, our estimate, guesstimate. We're probably going to 10, 10, 11 weeks. We'll be at a referendum. So that's mm. not a lot of time to do this work. And at all. It's not... So, you know, get up um, uh, our experts in running campaigns, um, getting information distributed to, you know, over a million people. Um, one would think that get up would have a significant campaign um, and involvement, uh, particularly, you know, as I understand it, get up is supporting yes. Um, what, what or how will um, get up involve itself in the campaign leading, in, leading up to October? Yeah, so we are going to go all in with the referendum, uh, persuading our members to get out there and have conversations in their communities and make sure the turnout on referendum day is really high. We need to win a double majority, a majority of states, a majority of the popular vote right across the country. So that's a significant amount of work. In terms of where we came to, uh, we never thought that, the, you know, in terms of like the yes position on us campaigning for the affirmative position, look, we were always going to campaign in the referendum. We're not part of the official campaign. Uh, we're not part of a Labor campaign. We're an independent movement. And part of that is trying to work out, you know, what's our role within this referendum campaign? Because, like anybody, this isn't the silver bullet, the, um, the representative body, in terms of fixing all the issues. And so we've really spent a lot of time listening to community, First Nations people, particularly around what they think about this sort of thing and um, kind of discussing what it means to have this vote, what does it mean for all the things that we've been campaigning for. This is not our mountaintop as a progressive organisation. You know, we support yeah. things like treaties and truth-telling, talk about uh, reparations and land back. We campaign for these things and we are still going to campaign for them. And what we're trying to make our membership see is that if you really want to call yourself an ally or a progressive person, then you need to think about what's the decade of reform before us what are the things that we could win if we have millions of people vote in favour? Because a lot of the voters, the voting intentions, regardless of what the reform is around the referendum and the voice to parliament and those types of things, actually the way that ordinary voters are perceiving the referendum is that this is a vote on First Nations people. So people will vote their intentions on what they think of First Nations people, which is problematic in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. But you need to get uh, understanding of the strategy around that uh, and how we, we use that to our favour. And so when we've gone out and had conversations, remote communities, you know, with a lot of mob around how they're seeing the referendum, uh, a lot of people will have faith, not in governments. We're not there trying to say, hey, trust the Labor government, they're going to do everything right. We don't believe that. We don't believe that at all. We campaign against them against fracking. There are a number of different issues. But if we have the majority of voters in this country on our side, there isn't a significant amount of things that we can achieve. Conversely, if we have a no vote across the country, just look at the kind of media that's coming out, the National David Little Proud today, attacking cultural heritage, saying farmers aren't going to know where to build a fence. This is the campaign against native title from 30 years ago. That is also the same people that are funding the no campaign. So we know what side we're on. 
Uh, we know where we need to go. We need to push the Labor government to do, be more ambitious, and we know that they're scared at the moment that they're going to leave, lose Conservative voters and, and it's going to look like a Labor campaign. But that doesn't mean organisations like Get Up can tap out and say, hey, this is what our future looks like. We are... Um, you know, campaigning for First Nations justice, we believe in treaties, we believe that we need to see these things come to fruition, and this is an opportunity that we're going to have over the next decade. I have to say, I've been, you know, mildly critical of uh, Yes 23. It seems like there's, like, too many cooks spoiling the broth there. Um, there doesn't seem to be any sort of clear direction from, from that. And like I said um, at the start of our interview with Larissa, GetUp has expertise and, pro- and a proven track record of running campaigns and all sorts of matters Um, for First Nations people and beyond. Has there been any discussions or representations made from Yes23 to sort of tap into some of the expertise that uh, GetUp has and and to utilise some of that? Look, of course, we, we, you know, we offered it, we talked to them around what we were doing, and at the end of the day... Where we got to is we just feel like where we are at as a progressive organisation is that we're probably a little bit too ambitious and they're very scared about scaring the moderate conservatives, even though our membership is very good at campaigning. I look at the Kills movement, the independent movement across this country, they're very good at getting kind of the middle of Australia to see the values-based reasoning on issues around why they should vote their, the intentions that we have as well, whether that's on climate change. Lots of different issues, including First Nations justice, refugees and asylum seekers also comes to mind. So campaigning on issues, regardless of political preference, is what we're good at. And so we offered a bunch of advice. But at the end of the day, we wanted to run a campaign that we felt comfortable with. We uh, we have a huge First Nations um, campaigning and organising team at GetUp. Uh, we have a lot of relationships into communities. And, it, it, you know, being an independent organisation is a strength for us. And so we feel like, you know, people are nervous around, is this a Labor campaign and that sort of stuff? So we want to give people an option to say, this isn't enough, but we want more, and give them a platform to say that on. So that's what we're going to use Get, get Up for. We have a lot of members of, you know, we just spent some time in Central Australia where community members are just feeling like they're being used as a political football they don't want to back in the official campaign, but they want to have something to say around what it means to have a greater say over their rights. You know, it's really hard to sell to our communities that they should trust government, and we're absolutely not the vehicle to do that because we are an organisation that campaigns who started to be in opposition to the Howard government and all the damage that they did. So we have a role to play in kind of political discourse in this country, and we're just trying to express in this campaign how we see it. Um, and from the early conversations that we've been having, it's actually thousands of conversations across the country, people are saying they want to campaign with us, so we're like, OK, we'll get a campaign out there um, and let's talk to the... The Part of the problem with the official campaign is that you're trying to appeal to everyone through compromise mm. and actually uniquely on First Nations justice, the country and middle of Australia has shifted. So we often talk about middle Australia as is a significant amount of the voting population who tend to vote conservative or, um, you know, uh, independent. But right now they have been really persuaded by, you just look at in terms of like when you're landing in different major cities and that sort of stuff, people calling it by their traditional names, people doing welcome to country, no fussing, people turning out to January 26th. Something has changed in the momentum in this country and that is about actually when the fight around First Nations justice has reached the middle of Australia. Maybe they don't understand our issues and our solutions and all those types of things, but they do think that something needs to change. And so it's for us to articulate what that change is. Like, we don't argue for climate policy and then Labor says, yeah, we're going to get a climate policy up for you. No, we keep campaigning until we get what we need. And that's the way that we see this. We see this as one important step on the way, but it's not our mountaintop. And we're happy to tell people all the things that we should be campaigning for and committing to campaigning for that. 
they're not going to win otherwise. Yeah, there's, there's some issues now within the, the, you know, the way the national conversation is being held on so many different topics, climate change being one where, you know, it isn't perfect, but it has now moved beyond a left-right issue. I mean, I think even, even the Liberal yeah. Party and National Party are seeing that there are votes now in, in actually undertaking something or implementing policies around climate change. Um, I think with the referendum, there was an opportunity there as well to talk about it beyond it being a left-right issue. But it seems to me that the, the No campaign, the Conservative No campaign, has done... Um, a really effective job with the assistance of the uh, News Corp media into making it a left-right uh, campaign now. And I would suggest to, you know, the S23 campaign is um, move beyond that, stick to the subject matter, um, don't buy into people's prejudices, explain what the issue is, explain how the voice can address it, explain how constitutional reform can address some of the issues... But don't treat it like a left-right campaign because you'll be too scared of saying what you really think about so many of the issues that need addressing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. We need to simplify it. The other thing that we've been telling to people is just, like, constitutional recognition. Nobody knows what, what that means. And part of the problem that we have is, like, the tangible thing around changing a 100-year-old document and how that actually makes a difference to people's lives. Nobody believes that it will. So understanding what the hell this thing is, and we just feel like you're simplifying it, like just as laws impacting older people or people with disability, we'll be better off if governments hear from directly from those people that are affected. It's common sense to hear from First Nations people. What we're talking about is a representative body. You know, we work in, in campaigning communities all the time, and what we often hear is, like, how do we influence this policy? How do we influence this cultural heritage protection? How do we get a section 10? All these types of things. Local people on the ground in communities need to be the spokespeople that elected. You know, we go out into community and, like, you know, they talk about, you know, all the different people and the spokespeople in the campaigns. Obviously, Noel Pearson splits a lot of communities different ways. I have lots of feelings around the things that he advocates for. But, you know, if you want to get rid of the power that people like Noel Pearson and Warren Mundine have, then you need to choose your own representative. And this is one way to do it. It doesn't solve everything, but I do think that they're, you know, and, and one of the conversations that comes out in community is that, Who's going to represent us? I'm like, we need to campaign to make sure that our communities have a say and are consulted properly around how people get elected into this thing. So important. If anyone, but if we don't pass the referendum, we won't get there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, anyone who is, you know, even a quasi-student of the impacts of colonialism and in particularly the organised um, um, way that colonialism through various departments and, and, the, and the clerks and public servants... Um, uh, impact on local communities, it tells you that the further away that those decision makers are away from Aboriginal communities, the worse the decisions, the worse the outcomes. And so the voice is an opportunity to, I guess, go some way to remedying the, the what people call the, the nation's birth certificate, somewhat simplistically. But it's also a way of adhering or addressing the issues that affect First Nations people in real time from the people that are being affected by some of these issues. And so it's kind of like a bit of a, a, bit of a no, no-brainer. And if anyone wants to read more about the Constitution itself, I'd, I'd, I'd urge people to go and read Barry Jones's article from the weekend in the Saturday paper, which he details 
what a really flimsy document <laughs> the Constitution actually is and what it does and does not have a provision for. You'll be surprised. Um, but, Larissa, yeah. look, thank you so much for your time. Um, you've got a, um, uh, uh, an event called Passing the Message Stick coming up. Is that correct? Or is that... Yeah, so Passing the Message Stick is a piece of research that I've been directing for four years, looking at how we persuade the middle of Australia to support First Nations justice. We've been doing a lot of trans, um, training on the transformative change. Um, you can get involved in those events. Go to passingthemessage.org or write, um, go to yes.org.au as well. That's a get-up volunteering page as well. But we're just trying to break it down for people. How to explain this? You don't need to be a constitutional lawyer. You don't need to, say, put your trust in the government. Actually, what are we for and how do we explain that? How do you go out into community? Just breaking it down for people. That's what we're trying to do. And, you know, I say to people, this is who are we going to be the day after the referendum if the country votes no? And when we talk to mob out in community, they're just like, this is going to be a mess. This is going to be the silence of the intervention if they don't. Like, we can see what is at stake here. And at the end of the day, like, I know there's a, to be some people talking about power and what has our... I grew up and I believe some of the most powerful things that we have as blackfellas is black advocacy. And blackfellas from across communities in regional areas, grassroots community mob, having a platform to say what they think to this government. There is no way if you went up home from where I'm from, Northern Rivers, Lismore, which will rival country, that we would vote in to some representative body, someone who's just going to say yes to government. It just wouldn't be possible. So I just feel like black advocacy is so powerful and all the work that we've done campaigning, like you can see it over the last decade, this is about giving people a platform and knowing that our communities can make the right decision on who represents them. Thank you so much, Larissa. If you want to find out more about uh, Get Up and their their campaign with the referendum, just go to Get Up. Uh, .org.au. Um, thanks so much for coming on again, Larissa, and um, best of luck of it all. Um, you're, you're putting in a tremendous effort, and I really appreciate uh, your time. Yeah, we've got to get it done. Thanks for having me. Now, on to tonight's second esteemed guest. We live in tumultuous times, particularly for those of us who identified and are accepted by our people as Aboriginal. One of the issues with the, which our communities are continually grappling with is identity itself. What makes an Aboriginal person? How is their identity verified? And what happens when that person, whether they're identified or not, engages with the Aboriginal community? What are the risks associated? And what are the processes that are required to actually verify that person's identity within any particular community? Risks for the individual concerned and the risk for the broader Aboriginal community are both inherent. Well, Bundjalung woman and esteemed novelist and essayist Melissa Lukashenko has thought deeply on the subject and has decided to look at it through another lens by exploring why people with Aboriginal heritage choose not to identify as Aboriginal. In her essay for the new edition of the monthly entitled Staying White, Melissa spoke with four people who have, who have or are very much suspected of having Aboriginal heritage. And in the year of 2023... The essay comes at a crucial moment in the national discussion and I'm very pleased to say that Melissa is back on the line with us. Melissa, welcome back to the mission. Jingiwala. Daniel, good to be with you, brother. Always good to be with someone esteemed as yourself. Um, You write in the essay, becoming Aboriginal isn't easy. And it's something that you can actually speak authoritatively on because your journey... um, 
started about 40 years ago at the invitation of uh, Guria Elders. Do you want to tell us about that formative part of your life? Yeah, um, I'll just um, say, give my respects to elders and traditional owners where the program's being made, Daniel, and also where I am on Jaguar Country. Thanks, Melissa. In Madungeon, Brisbane. Yeah, um, my mum basically assimilated, um, not that she had a lot of choice in mm. Queensland at the time. She, um, she grew up with her mother, her grandmother, her aunts and uncles in a little country town which is where her grandmother had been taken to after removal. And um, when Mum moved to the city, she was a like medium-dark-skinned woman, but she, she basically passed as white. And if she hadn't done that, then I think most mob around the country know the drill. You know, your children are at grave risk of being taken away. And in Mum's case, because she married a super-violent Russian man, um, she had, you know, very few choices. So our Aboriginality was masked, but there were um, Yulimbeer people in the neighbourhood and they knew Mum's story. And one of those people, Auntie Azola Best, who was a senior um, Yulimbeer elder before her passing, she sort of grabbed me in my late teens and said, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll take you under my wing a bit and claim you and educate you. And it was Auntie Azola and a few other people in the Brisbane community, people like Uncle Victor Hart and Uncle Les Collins, were only two of a few, um, basically grew me up in culture. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity and that education. So I'm now, 40 years later, um, you know, well-recognised and accepted yep. as a black fella. And so I, what I was interested in in the debate, which is pretty toxic, you know, it, it does get toxic sometimes. Yep. And a lot of anger and, you know, often justified anger um, from community towards people that kind of lobby and uninvited and start applying for jobs and start, you know, claiming this, that and the other because they don't know any better, usually. Yep. And I just wanted to say, I wanted to say to those people, that demographic, hang on, have you thought about staying white? You know, have you thought that not grabbing onto and being greedy for Aboriginal identity, have you thought of that as a valid option? And so I started thinking, well, what's going on with people who don't claim? And so I put out a call for people who don't identify that it was kind of a catch-22 that because I'm a black fella, the people who I know who aren't going to identify are going to be people who are close to the community sort of thing, They're not going to yeah. be your average mainstream Australian. But anyway, I ended up interviewing four women who um, who either don't identify at all or in one case identify, well, probably in two really, identify very privately, don't tick the box, don't go around saying I'm such and such a tribe or this is my mob here, but, but who work um, in one case, in Kylie's case, work within the community, do a lot of activism work and uh, Aboriginal in everything except the fact of standing up and saying I'm Aboriginal. So I just wanted to basically um, say it's, it's more complicated than saying us mob are being invaded by a bunch of claimers and that's all there is to it. Or um, 
these poor people have been, you know, affected by genocidal policies and we've got to say, yes, yes, come in and, you know, share everything we've got immediately. It's it's more complicated than that, and that's what I was trying to get at. No, and you, you, you display that beautifully in, in the essay. And it makes me reflect on, on my time working um, in and around uh, Aboriginal affairs. And the amount of times I've worked in a, in a setting where there is someone that, you know, tans up really well <laughs> in in the summer, you know, um, someone that you would swear like by the look of their brow and their eyes and um, their, their, you know, skinny skinny ankles and skinny skinny wrists um, that they were blackfellow, but they do not identify, but they do work closely within um, the community, and it's um it's a, it's a it's a strange but totally understandable phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think people are drawn unconsciously to community when they have a bloodline sometimes and you know sometimes that's benign and of course there are the people who are the the frauds and the fakes and the gammon ones and as I say at the end of the essay you know if someone is known to be fraudulent if someone is known to be ripping off blackfellas and it's definitely proven that they're not aboriginal take them out the back and flog them but for everyone else you know it's it's undoing genocide is never going to be easy. You know, there's been 200 plus years of trying to wipe us off the face of the earth. And so, of course, you're going to have this subpopulation for a long, long time to come um, of yeah. people that just don't fit. And, and really, I think um, I was talking to Rihanna Patrick about it this morning, um, also for NIRS, and when I reflected, I, I sort of came to the conclusion that really... What was bothering me was are we approach as we are we as blackfellows approaching new Aborigines, are we approaching them with our own Aboriginal values front and centre? You know? yeah, right. And yep. our inclusion is a key Aboriginal value and so is fairness and then so is behaving lawfully, you know, within Aboriginal I mean- law. I think I think you know the, the the you know you you yourself are a prime example the the love your old people demonstrated to move beyond themselves and mm. to, to bring you in and to instill culture in you um, is something that has happened since first contact you know we've had um, uh, you know there was never a question of half castes for instance for for, for you know using a a very outdated term half castes being sort of renounced or abandoned by uh, Aboriginal communities. They were always brought in and instilled as part of the culture. Yeah, I think that was that was nearly always the case. I think Marie Munkera would have something else to say about that with her experience in the Territory. But, um, yeah, I mean, a child, a mother's child is a mother's child, a father's child is a father's child. And... I don't think there's anyone across the continent that would say if someone's been taken away themselves that they shouldn't be welcomed back. You know, that's just common sense. And maybe that person's kid um, should always be welcomed back. But when it gets a little bit further down the track, you know, you see these poor lost souls on Facebook saying, you know, my great-great-great-great-grandfather was, you know, a half-caste man from such and such and who's my mob? And it's just like... um, you're being really, um, well, white, I suppose, not to put too point a point on it. Um, just, you know, just remain as a white Australian and, you know, learn what you can about the country where you live, you know, engage with your local mob, but 
don't sort of chase, go on this wild goose chase of trying to find belonging through a very distant bloodline when it's it's who you are now. Exactly. You know, it's who you are as a community member, a white person, as a member of whatever community you live in. That's what matters. It's who you are here and now, not who someone was 150 or 180 years ago who you, you know, almost certainly had a very little connection to and you're trying to cling on to it, just, you know, have a think about staying white and then go from there. That's, and, that's kind of what I was driving at. Yeah, yeah, and, no, you, you, and you get there beautifully. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, you and I would both um, know and have involvement in, um, you know, professional settings where someone comes along, um, are able to, you know, um, I guess through a distant bloodline like you just articulated, prove uh, their connection to Aboriginally, they're put into an identified position and then all mm. hell breaks loose because... And that's, that's the real... That's one of the serious problems. I think there's two or maybe three really serious issues and that's, that's the obvious one. People taking identified jobs when they can't actually do the job that's required. They're not qualified... Um, you know, they don't have the cultural insight and so they're not just taking a job from an actual blackfella, but they're buggering up things for anyone that they're supposed to service in that job, whether they're supposed to be teaching or whether they're supposed to be helping people find jobs or whatever it is, caring for country. You know, there's, the damage just ripples out and that that's a systemic problem, you know. Those people get ripped and ripped hard. Do, yeah. and And... You know, if they if they're told and they won't listen, then fair enough. But really, it's a it's a systemic problem. You know, that's a problem of rules and regulations. And in the essay that I wrote, Andy Broder Roberts was saying, and I think a lot of people have suggested this, that there needs to be a two tier system of blackfellas who are born and raised who are actually cultural blackfellas, and then people with a bloodline. Now, I don't know if that's practical. Uh, I know that when um, they brought in, uh, it used to be called Ethnic Affairs. Ethnic Affairs, I think, used to have this two-tier thing where you're either a migrant yourself or you're the child of a migrant, and that determined what you were able to access in the Australian system. Yep. I mean, we're not migrants and our culture and belonging is, is really different, of course. But there, there needs to be... a We need to break that connection between someone having a bloodline and ticking the box and then accessing identified jobs, resources that are meant for grassroots community that are really struggling. I think we need to break that connection without saying to people, no, go away, you're, you're, uh, there's something wrong with you. You know, either, These people have to either be taught to be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander by elders, by the appropriate people, or they have to be um, shown why it's better for them to stay white, I reckon. It's, it's, I mean, it's a really complex conversation and it's something that's um, still being borne out across communities and, you know, no one has any real solutions for it yet. But you spoke to um, one younger man, man um, who said that uh, there needs to be a line drawn somewhere. If families with a bloodline didn't identify as Aboriginal before Mabo, then you missed the cut-off date. And then you have um, Uncle Victor Hart from um, uh, from the Cape, from Cape York, disagreeing, saying Aboriginality doesn't ex- Aboriginality doesn't expire like a lottery ticket. Um, yeah, two two, two very two very valid um, points of view that um, 
uh, are conversations that are being had all over the place. But yeah. in this year of 2023, Melissa, that conversation is so much more, I guess, intensified and there's so much more scrutiny with it as, mm. the, as the Conservative mm. No campaign in particular kind of uses identity yeah. and eugenics as a bit of a dog whistle in this campaign. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, um, and they always will. They always will, you know. Again, it's you're talking about policies that are 200-odd years old of trying to wipe us out and breed us out and shoot us out and poison us out and educate us out and whatever. And, you know, of course, Conservatives um, are going to, you know, keep coming back to the, you know, the stupid things like skin colour or, you know, blood measuring and all this sort of crap. When it's not about colour or, or, you know, blood quantum, of course, it's about um, connection to community, connection to elders, and whether or not you're living as an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person and making a contribution to a community. But I really just wanted to broaden the debate out and get away from this kind of toxic, knee-jerk um, argument that I see played out online a lot. It's like, you know, who's the who's the um, victim of the week? You know, oh, we'll attack this person, we'll attack that person. But and, and, you know, in some cases that might be justified, but it doesn't fix anything. You know, just being angry about something is not a solution. It's understandable, but I think... Uh, and Brother Greg Phillips um, mm-hmm. had a uh, proposal a couple of years back where he... It was something along the lines of if people want to identify them, they need to have they need to prove it through both DNA and community acceptance. But as soon as that DNA word was used, I think it was quite a thoughtful proposal. Yep. But as soon as the DNA word was used, even by a blackfella talking to blackfellas, you know, all um, hell broke loose and people started talking about dog tags and you name it. But um, we just, I think if we come back to values, you know, who are we as First Nations people and what are the values that we want to express in the way we live and the way we treat people and country, you know? And I think just simplistic knee-jerk anger is not, um, that's not the way I was taught to be an Aboriginal person. It's... It's about being thoughtful, it's about being respectful, and when you've, you know, come to a decision, then it's about being staunch. Absolutely the same. That's the way I've always understood um, our people. I know you're from a different end of the country, but it's um, always been the case with my mob down here as well. Um, Melissa Lukashenko, you've entered another thoughtful and provocative chapter into the national conversation and the conversations around what it is to be Aboriginal in this country. Uh, The Monthly, which includes Melissa's article, Staying White, which is a cracking read, is available now. And if you want to um, also read some of of Melissa's other work, the 2019 Miles Franklin award-winning novel, Too Much Lip, is still available in all good shops with so much of her other amazing work. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the show and for writing what, what... actually is a very risky subject matter to write about but um, of course you're a person that's brave enough to do it and intelligent enough to do it in such a way that it makes sense to so many people so thank thank you for coming on the show again thank you uncle charlie's playing which means it's the end of another episode of the mission thank you so much to larissa borden roberts and melissa um, melissa lukashenko for joining us for our two very important uh, conversations we're going to try and keep the show at this calibre all the way through to 
the October referendum because there is so much to talk about on so many different fronts. Um, thank you once again for uh, tuning in. Until next week, stay safe, stay strong and stay listening. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.